The Ulster Workers' Council Strike 1974, Part 1, A Very Own British Rebellion. I would love to have been one of those blue bloods that ran the Northern Irish state for 50 years. As Prime Minister, I would have been gentry, aristocracy or an industrial magnate. If I were one of those rulers, I would insist on being addressed by my title. And I could have all the fantastic perks and high living we upper class were entitled to, quaffing fine wine or sipping the finest port and sherry in the stately marble corridors of power. The little people would come with their concerns and like them, my response would be the same. No central heating, I don't care. No indoor toilets and having to have a dump outside in the freezing cold at two in the morning, I don't care. Rubbish wages compared to your English counterparts, I don't care. High unemployment at a time of full employment in England, I don't even care to care. You want an official opposition, what, and see close at hand how lazy and self-important we are, busying ourselves and getting nothing done, that's not going to happen. Next question, oh, is that the time? You'll have to excuse me, my shooting party's waiting. You want better representation and living conditions? Well, that's more difficult because that's two propositions put together. Look, I would cry, Catholics, come to steal your jobs. That would work a treat. And then I would, like those blue-blooded rulers, those living gods who arrogantly lorded it over Ulster, having to react to a more enlightened time, make myself prominent in visiting the nunneries and schools of my Irish Catholic minority. And they would engage with me in front of the cameras only to observe me pass on oblivious and leave them to silently, sullenly hate me. So why would I feel entitled to rule and walk the, the very world itself like the Lord of Misrule? Actually, to be called the Lord of Misrule means I would, have, I would have to have actually done something and got it wrong, so not that. I would rule and alternate my working day between my stately home, my stately offices at Stormont, well, as much as I could fit in between shooting parties, hunts and elite dinner parties, all cigars and fireside reminiscences about the little people of Ulster and their incomprehensible accents and quirks. Because that's the way it worked when we blue-blooded unionist Protestants, more connected to the English aristocratic elites than our ministerial colleagues operated for 50 years. You didn't get elected to the high offices of state. You inherited ministerial positions along with everything else when your time had come. I might be worthless if I was one of our Ulster's 20th century reading elite, but clearly one of my ancestors wasn't as incompetent as me. Two conclusions can be drawn from this. Firstly, that in our genealogy, a bitch at some time had clearly got over the wall. And secondly, that we were absolutely fucking useless. Our only practical purpose being to show our civil servants 
who ran everything in spite of us, up as being only marginally less incompetent than us. And that was the way the Ulster Unionist Party ran Northern Ireland for 50 years, from the inception of the State of Northern Ireland on the 3rd of May 1921. And all that those blue-blooded, upper-class, English-accented elites, many of them imported recently from England, yes, they moved in the same circles, needed to do was to join the Orange Order, put on an orange sash, or shout no surrender and eyes would light up. They could have put a Union Jack Rosette on a donkey and also Protestants would have voted it into Parliament. And don't tell me that this wasn't a point of recurring humour for them. And at the end of those 50 or so years, when Northern Ireland was becoming more unstable and full of religious hate, the ruling class of Ulster would actually try to do something and in doing so would only expose how absolutely incompetent they had always been. And then the bombs started going off and suddenly they would discover that all their tricks no longer worked. And by 1972, the blue-blooded elite who had governed Northern Ireland for those long 51 obscure years were gone. But it took those blue bloods and the crisp English accents a long time in going. In its 50 years, the Stormont Parliament in South Belfast had represented very little but itself. Up until the end of its tenure, the governing party was led by a combination of landed gentry, such as Lord Viscount Brookborough, James Chichester Clark and Hugh MacDowell Pollock, or aristocracy such as Captain Terence O'Neill, or gentrified industrial magnates such as the first Viscount Craig Avon, and all of them taking Ulster for granted, all of them in an act of ultimate patronisation were members of the Orange Order, a type of sectarian Protestant Freemasonry which commemorated all the victories which ascendancy Protestants had enjoyed in Ireland. And top Orangemen, like their blue-blooded rulers, played to the real fears of their Protestant working-class electorate, Yet the blue-blooded elite of Ulster did very little to improve their living conditions. Where they finally won inward investment, it was because wages were so low that other workers in the United Kingdom were undercut. Ulster Protestants had suffered these individuals as they played out their importance and their self-entitlement over their heads. For this had been the unavoidable reality of the Faustian pact that they had made in order to maintain their identity. Their fear was that breaking ranks would cause their state, once divided, to disintegrate. It was even worse for the Catholic majority, but I will address the kaleidoscope of opinions, their history and progress in the next series. This series is about Ulster Protestantism and the reality in which they found themselves in 1974, the real year in which they found their sense of nationhood in the Ulster Workers' Council strike of that year. The old Prime Ministers of Northern Ireland and their cabinets became conceited rulers over a conceited nation, comprising an inconvenient people, and cared very little, if at all, for the living conditions of their working class, as history attests. And the Ulster Unionist Party ruled the Northern Irish state for over half a century without any challenge. Indeed, they did not even recognise an official opposition and rigged their votes to keep themselves safe from criticism. But among the politicians at Stormont, there were other men who tried to better the conditions of their fellow citizens. Men like Brian Faulkner, men like Bill Craig and Harry West. The last Prime Minister of Northern Ireland under the old Stormont regime was Brian Faulkner. Through him we see Ulster's descent into the reviled madness that provoked the workers' strike in 1974, a time of relentless Irish Republican insurgency, a surreal episode when normally law-abiding Ulster Protestant men and women and youngsters of both sexes would hijack lorries and erect barricades as British Army patrols, bewildered, flitted past them like ghosts pretending they weren't there. 
Through Faulkner, we can see the causes that sparked the National Rebellion in 1974, which proved to be the most successful industrial and national strike in modern history. The last Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, Brian Faulkner, saw himself as a moderniser, and under the old Stormont regime, probably he was a moderate and enlightened politician in their terms, but he failed to understand either the reality of the world he found himself in, or the stark reality of his own shortcomings. He was heralded by Northern Ireland's reading elite as they lost their grip as the first middle-class Prime Minister in Northern Ireland's history, but yet he was a member of the Ivy Hunt and the North Down Irish Yacht Club. He was authentically middle-class, probably in the same way the BBC tried to convince you Prince William's wife, Kate Middleton, is. And it is with Brian Faulkner that the story of the Ulster Workers' Strike, the most effective industrial strike and national rebellion, begins. It is fitting to dwell on him momentarily, as his lack of judgment was one of the main catalysts for this national rebellion. Born in Helen's Bay in 1921, preferring to be educated in the Irish Free State rather than England, he left his law degree at Queen's University to run his father's shirt manufacturing firm employing 3,000, the largest factory of its type in the world. Brian Faulkner was Minister for Home Affairs in 1959 during an IRA border insurgency and his handling of security made his reputation among Unionists as a hardliner. Appointed Minister of Commerce in 1963, he and his Eton-educated rival for Unionist leadership, Captain Terence O'Neill, eventually came to loggerheads over local government reforms pressed on him by the Labour government in Britain, and O'Neill resigned. This is the same Captain Terence O'Neill who warned in a television address to the population of Northern Ireland as their society was plunged into violence that also was at the crossroads between progress and violent anarchy. No prizes there for pointing out the obvious. In Faulkner's leadership bid in 1969, he lost out to another of the Blue Bloods, James Chichester Clark, O'Neill giving his own cousin his casting vote. As Ulster descended into sectarian violence, Chichester Clark resigned and Faulkner was elected Prime Minister, beating his main rival, Bill Craig, MP for Lorne, by 26 votes to four. By now, at the same time the Stormont government celebrated the 50th birthday of the Northern Irish state, civil rights marches had been confronted by the police, sectarian division exploded into unparalleled violence, police were overwhelmed by sectarian mobs, shootings and explosions, and the British army had been on the streets sent in by the British government for over two years. Faulkner's political career is a reflection of Ulster's tumult of that period. He would see the B-Specials, 19,000 strong, armed and the guarantors of Ulster's Protestant safety disbanded. He would see the recommendation for the disarming of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which was briefly carried out in 1971, and he would witness all of this going on whilst his people were subject to relentless bombings and shootings in a way unthinkable today. His rule would see large tracts of Ulster left in the hands of Irish militant Republicans becoming in effect a training ground of terror. The provisional IRA, like all terror groups, would call themselves soldiers, but when the peace agreement was signed, how many prisoners were released from their prisoner of war camps? The purpose of a terrorist, as Lenin said, is to cause terror, and that's exactly what the IRA were doing. And as the madness of Ulster worsened, it was Faulkner who introduced internment without trial in August 1971 to stem the Irish Republican onslaught of daily bombings and shootings. In trying to liberalise economically, he liberalised too late. In taking sterner security measures, 
his information was out of date, and the backlash from the Catholic community was well-voiced and well-justified. He had last admitted an opposition party, the NILP, the Northern Ireland Labour Party, under David Bleakley into the government with paid chairmanship of two committees, but no sooner was David Bleakley in than he resigned in protested internment. Any reform was too late for the enraged Catholics. In its turn, the Protestant working classes left alternating between cursing Stormont and cursing the IRA struck back. And while all hell was breaking loose, in January 1972, the army shot 13 unarmed demonstrators on a peaceful march in Derry, Londonderry, and violence erupted with renewed ferocity. The IRA split into the provisional IRA, formed to defend Catholic areas, and attacked the Stormont state after breaking away from the official IRA, who... By then were Marxists and were more measured about attacks against their fellow Protestant working class. And on Protestant streets, self-protection vigilantes formed into an explosion of paramilitary and terrorist organisations of varying effectiveness and ferocity. The biggest of these was the UDA, the Ulster Defence Association. However, the most effective Protestant terrorist grouping, the Ulster Volunteer Force, the UVF, took their war to the IRA and bombed and killed in Catholic areas in the same measure the provisional IRA were bombing and killing in Protestant areas. By 1972, the only world most had ever known had gone mad. 1972 would see 500 dead and thousands maimed and injured in the bloodiest year of the conflict and presiding over all this, Faulkner had no answer. Neither had the British government, who now saw the old Stormont government as part of the problem. Faulkner met with the Conservative British Prime Minister Edward Heath and did not fully understand what Heath was conveying to him. He was taking away Stormont's control over security. Then again, Faulkner never really could read people. Heath and Faulkner would meet again in equally calamitous circumstances for Protestants in 1973, as we shall see. But it was now in March 1972 that the last Prime Minister of Northern Ireland resigned, along with his entire cabinet, in protest at the British government's taking away of security powers. And soon, the Stormont Parliament was prorogued. The Parliament was to be prorogued initially for a period of a year, but the 50 years of unchallenged monolithic rule by the Ulster Unionist Blue Bloods was over. Faulkner had openly accused Heath of giving succour to the IRA in the abolition of their Parliament, and the IRA, emboldened in their turn, heralded 1972 as the year of victory, and renewed their bombing campaign and shooting attacks with a renewed viciousness and multiple daily explosions rocked Ulster without relent. The leaders of the provisional IRA were certain that the end of the Northern Irish state had come, and that a unified Ireland was both impending and a historical inevitability, and most people who bothered to care agreed with their assessment, and their things stood. Their things were trapped in a cycle of madness, vengeance, and an escalating spiral of tit-for-tat sectarian murders amid a relentless bombing campaign that took the heart, the commerce, and the light out of Ulster cities and towns. Enter stage left Bill Craig. Bill Craig was born in Cookstown in 1924. After serving as a turret gunner in an RAF Lancaster bomber during the war, he qualified as a solicitor. Elected to the Stormont Parliament as MP for Lorne in 1960, he was instrumental in electing Captain Terence O'Neill as Prime Minister in 1963. He held health and local government portfolios and served at the Ministry of Development. As Minister for Home Affairs, it was Bill Craig who restricted the civil rights marches in Duke Street in October 1968 and brought in the ensuing violence and accordingly Ulster's plight to the international world. Sacked by the then Prime Minister Captain Terence O'Neill, who suspected him of Ulster nationalism, 
Craig criticised the security policies of his successors of Chichester Clark and Brian Faulkner. He was a man who delighted in the more refined blends of whisky and in taking his sports car alone through country lanes. And in doing this, he considered the plight of Ulster Protestantism very carefully. And to provide an answer, he formed Ulster Vanguard. Vanguard was meant as a pressure group, an umbrella organisation for other pro-unionist and loyalist Protestant groupings. Craig was still in the Unionist Party when he formed it. And in the election of the new Prime Minister in 1971, Craig lost out to Brian Faulkner by 26 votes to 4. Vanguard enjoyed strong and Fisk observes astonishing and frightening support from the Protestant paramilitary organisations. Vanguard held a number of rallies attended by all sections of Ulster Protestant life bar their upper middle class. There were paramilitaries in jeans and combat jackets who would share a platform with senior members of the Orange Order in their suits, bowler hats, white gloves, sashes and ceremonial swords. Craig's rallies took on a militaristic hue, which the outsiders, not subject to an average of four explosions and 50 shootings a day, without an end in sight, looks like fascism. At the first rally on the 12th of February, his car was escorted by UDA motorcycle outriders wearing insignia and military jackets. Men were lined up in military fashion for inspection. But this is not the whole story. Press pictures from the time show hundreds and thousands of denim-clad working-class teenagers quietly making their way home from rallies, tiredly carrying their Ulster banners, preferring to forgo a David Cassidy concert the same day to make their feelings of being forgotten known. Ulster Protestants were turning to anybody who would voice their frustration, and Catholic pejoratives such as Adolf Craig misread what was going on. In the largest rally in Ormo Park in East Belfast, before a crowd of 60,000, on the 18th of March 1972, Craig said... We must build up dossiers on the men and women who are a menace to this country. Because one day, ladies and gentlemen, if the politicians fail, it will be our duty to liquidate the enemy. God help those who get in our way, he said. Six days afterwards, the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, Brian Faulkner, and his cabinet would resign en bloc, and the Northern Irish Parliament was prorogued by the British government. And Vanguard, in response, became a political party. The Vanguard Ulster Progressive Party, the VUPP, the word progressive, was put in there, by the way, to reflect the number of trade union leaders and supporters and shop stewards in heavy industry. In a speech to the Conservative Monday Club that same year, Bill Craig suggested that he could mobilise 80,000 men in defence of Ulster. Faced with a threat to their existence as a people, Bill Craig became the spokesman for a new breed of thinking, and it was the men like him that hundreds of thousands of Ulster Protestants long forgotten flocked. Bill Craig, like the Reverend Ian Paisley, who we will come to in a minute, was highly critical of the traditional blue-blooded Ulster Unionists and their legacy of 50 years of unchallenged complacency. His speeches became more and more militant and he became the focus of those hundreds of thousands who felt abandoned and invisible. The Vanguard Party's launch sealed the split in the monolithic Ulster Unionist Party and appealed to the working class especially. At the time of the workers' strike in 1974, Bill Craig was 49 and he would hold the highest stock among the strikers. In 1972, Republican gunmen fired at his car. In 1974, they bombed his home. He therefore felt personally, as well as keenly, the plight of the Ulster Protestant working classes. And in 1972, a time of renewed daily bombings and shootings, having witnessed the British government disband the B-Specials, then briefly disarm the Northern Irish Police Force, the RUC, Ulster Protestants now watched as their Prime Minister, Brian Faulkner, Faced with a fate accompli, his authority taken from under his feet, 
resigned along with his entire cabinet in protest, having watched their institutions and their security systematically dismantled in two short years, nigh the Ulster Protestants had to watch the spectacle of their government effectively abolished. In future they would have a pro-consul, as the rebel Ulster Workers' Council would come to call him, a government minister appointed Secretary of State by the British Parliament with the responsibility for Northern Ireland in charge until a new settlement could be found. Bill Craig, the focus of Ulster Protestant dissent, eloquently gave voice to their frustration, their voicelessness and their impotence. But the international world was a world full of revolutions and liberation movements and viewed them merely as English colonists on the wrong side of history. Ulster Protestantism in its origins, however, is anything but English. Stormont, for all his faults, had been the symbol of their uniqueness. In response to the proroguing of their parliament, Bill Craig called a two-day strike. The power workers in the power stations under a union convener called Billy Kelly, who we will hear much more of later, dutifully powered down the turbines and closed down industry in Belfast and the surrounding areas in a show of what the power workers were capable of. It would be the shape of things to come. As Fisk relates, on the first day of the strike, the power cuts stretched far beyond Dromore and Macrofelt into the city of Derry itself, into the Catholic areas of South Down and the farming areas of Fermanagh and South Tyrone. It was the government accepting the impact of the strike who closed down most of the facilities at 4pm. Transport stopped both within and without the province and 190,000 workers stayed at home. This strike was a massive demonstration of discontent. Northern Ireland had been an unequal society and its cause lay in its roots. The state had been created as a rejection of Irish nationalism at the time of Irish independence, despite requests from Sir Edward Carson, the founding father of the Ulster state, to make Catholics the envy of the world. The Blue Bloods, instead of improving standards for all, played one against the other to the advantage of Protestant loyalists, who the state had been created for. But the greater irony, the greater problem they had been confronted with, was the proposition that a state could not incorporate into itself people whose very desire was the destruction of that state, and that is a question still unresolved today. As a result of this, Ulster Protestants found themselves heavily overrepresented in heavy industry, and this two-day strike showed what they were capable of. The British, not at that stage ensconced in Stormont, missed it off their radar when it came to the Ulster Workers' Council strike in 1974, and this is important as events will show. And as Faulkner's cabinet resigned, Bill Craig addressed a rally of many thousands at the front of Belfast City Hall with his bodyguard Hugh Petrie beside him. Craig demanded a return of the Parliament amid an outpouring of cornered pro-Ulster sentiment and as the crowd roared their approval, Robert Fisk, the then Times correspondent, states, A young man unhesitantly climbed the facade of the old City Hall behind him, tore down the Union Jack from the flagmast and replaced it with a red, white and gold banner of Ulster. This banner, created as late as 1953, was their sacred flag, bearing as it did their sacred symbol, the Red Hand of Ulster. And the crowd erupted in cheering, and the placards they carried derided the British Prime Minister, who had done this to them as worse than the IRA. At one point amid the tumult, Craig offered Hugh Petrie his bodyguard the microphone, but he refused it, preferring forever to stay in the shadows and act as a prime mover of events. He instead suggested a rally at the Stormont Parliament building the next day. The following day, crowds estimated up to 190,000 out of a population of less than a million converged on the old Stormont Parliament building. There, Craig and his associates, representing Ulster descent, met Brian Faulkner and his cabinet in the balcony. There, Craig and Faulkner actually shook hands. 
The whole cabinet stood obediently behind him, and as the crowds roared approval, somebody in Craig's entourage suggested they set up a provisional government, believing that at that moment they would have the support of the security forces and the civil service, indeed all sectors of Protestant Ulster society. Craig, as Fisk tells us, turned the idea down flat. Craig and his utterances had often stated that for Ulster to thrive it would require shedding of the more Catholic areas in the West into a new partition, which would require a potentially bloody transfer of populations. A horrified Brian Faulkner in his memoirs later voiced his bewilderment as to how such an unrealistic and frightening solution would impact on the 200,000 Catholics then in Belfast. The British missed the orderly two-day strike of 1972, but what they, the Irish government and Faulkner would remember when the Ulster Workers' Council strike came was the later Protestant strike on the 5th of February 1973, which erupted into a debacle of violence and rioting. Instigated in response to two Protestant paramilitaries being interned for bombing a Catholic worker's bus, by the end of the day, five people had been murdered. One, a fireman, shot in his back as he was dutifully employed, putting out a fire, started in protest by a Protestant arsonist. Gangs of youths called Tartans had run amok at Willowfield, where, according to Fisk, they got at a church, burning pews, desecrating the altar and systematically smashing the twelve stations of the cross, magnificently carved specially for the church at Oberammergau. The majority of Ulster Protestants shook their head in disgust and their mouthpiece, the Belfast newsletter, ran the headline, Ulster's Day of Shame. This fiasco had put to an end, it was believed, the use of strike action as a political weapon to effect change. But remember this incident as it was factored into everybody's thinking in 1974. So where to go? They were losing everything. And to emphasise the nature of this existential threat, they woke up to the fact that the world in general hated them. Ulster Protestants, because that's the term that was used then, and I will therefore use it, were seen as a colonist English population who, like the French in Algeria, were a mere legacy of colonialism on the wrong side of history, in the way of the tide of nations and national self-determination. They had become a punch bag for international virtue signalling, led by descendant Irish Catholics who cheerleaded their destruction and gained the traction of world opinion, especially in the United States, where the US government was unconcerned by collections to buy arms to shoot both those of them who went into uniform as well as the British soldiers on their streets and through their explosions are men, women and children. Popular culture picked up on this and virtue signalled by deriding them and their very existence to the world. Even the Beatles' former members jumped on this bandwagon. Paul McCartney with his execrable Give Ireland Back to the Irish and John Lennon with his song Bloody Sunday where he intones in what would probably now be seen as a hate crime. You Anglo pigs and Scotties sent to colonise the North. Wave your bloody Union Jack but you know what it's worth before calling for their extermination stating it's those mothers time to burn. The 1970s was an age of revolution, of national movements, and international revolutionaries and communists and post-colonial governments were quick to jump on the bandwagon. Colonel Gaddafi of Libya supplied arms to the IRA to shoot Ulster Protestants. Irish Americans, in a very unique, inadvertent alliance of interest with Gaddafi, supplied money to buy the weapons and explosives that pruned their number. The IRA were even welcomed for training at Palestinian training camps. Camps training for terror. And Northern Ireland faced the abyss because of intellectual arrogance and hostile ideologies. All narratives, all discourses in the international media seem to work to the IRA narrative of a fight between the Catholics, the British Army and colonists who simply should not be there. 
but also people had been there for by now well over 350 years. If that logic applied to the United States, then all the Europeans should go home. To be honest, even the British government wanted rid of them and the problem they presented. Simply put, Ulster Protestants were an inconvenient people. They were an inconvenient nation in the way of history. Even the population of mainland Britain, as they termed Great Britain, fairly much disliked the very idea of them. But in their defence, Ulster Protestants were simply a different ethnic people. They had their own culture, which simply owed heavily to their lowland Scottish ancestry in the north. Even their religion being inherited from Scotland, along with their varieties of bread, their speech, their cuisine. They buried their dead on the third day, and for a religiously pious people, only 3% of them in 1974 went to any of their countless churches with a bewildering variety of Protestant denominations. As for the rest of the working class, they went to bars, not pubs, where their fellow Christians, good living, as they called them, would not go because their Christians did not drink alcohol. And yet, they turned to their good living brethren in times of crisis and celebration. They were a unique people. And in their culture, never taught in their schools, but instead taught on their grandmother's knees, this present insurgency was only the fifth of the troubles they had suffered since the creation of their state, comprising before that primarily of attacks by the IRA across the border, and the previous four troubles had been snuffed out quietly. Never forsake, their working class grandparents would say under their wide young eyes, the blue skies of Ulster for the grey skies of an Irish Republic. And due to this uniqueness, they found the very idea of the Republic to the South, Irish in nationality, Catholic in religion and Gaelic in culture, where a hostile church held on due prominence, indeed controlling public life, where the main sports such as Gaelic football and Hurley meant nothing to them, incomprehensible. For the Protestants who lived in the Northern Irish state after 350 years had a unique identity. They were known in the United States as Scots-Irish and had played a pivotal role in the creation of the United States. In fact, becoming, some would argue, the original American, Protestant, white, English-speaking, and with an axe to grind against their perfidious former British overlords when they had the chance. But their school syllabus taught them none of this, only English history. They were deeply musical in their traditions, a fact which manifested itself most clearly in their orange parades. Indeed, their musical influence had cleaved deep into American musical tradition, Kentucky bluegrass music being one of their legacies. And yet nobody in the jaundiced eyes of 1974 would ever refer to them as a deeply musical people. Their culture was anti-intellectual, and this was not obviously an outsider, unless they were intrepid enough to take the trouble to move among them, which Robert Fisk did. In 1974, English imperialism and Irish arrogance, or the other way round, it makes no difference, had appropriated their contribution to the world in a stampede of patrician contempt for their impertinent recalcitrance in not buying into other people's agendas. And in the perfect storm of the coalescence of prejudices in a post-colonial world, Ulster Protestants were viewed as simply being in the way. And their fear of United Ireland was not about Irishness or nationalism. It was much more real than that. It was about their continued existence. The Ireland that led claimed them in 1974 had no place for them. It had no time for them and no recognition of them. In 1974, they saw the way the tide of history was pulling them. And they knew that within 20 years of United Ireland, they would be scattered in the diaspora. That is, in the luckiest scenario, um, there were many more who saw the darker prospect of refugee camps in Scotland as the Palestinians of Western Europe, and there would be few of them left still in Northern Ireland to tend the graves of their forefathers. Leaderless, successively defenceless, 
internationally derided, and their fates now in the hands of British politicians who did not understand them and whose opinions were dictated by world opinion and self-interest, Ulster Protestants were left with a sense of stirring into the abyss of eventual extinction, of being talked and negotiated out of existence, among the chaos of violence and relentless bombings without an end. Their politicians were reduced to a mere handful in the British National Parliament at Westminster, where their unique voice could be safely ignored. And so the working classes turned to the paramilitaries, springing up everywhere it seemed to be their defenders in the engendered cornered desperate madness that daily multiple bombings and shootings without any end in sight produce. Faced with the proroguing of their parliament, the dismantling of their defenders, the beast specials, and the prospect of the disarming of their police force, whilst militant Irish Republican no-go areas flourished as training grounds, dominated by those coming to kill them, they turned to the godfathers of violence. In May 1972, a new Protestant paramilitary group, the Ulster Defence Association, took to the streets and in protest of the British government allowing whole tracts of Northern Ireland to remain in Irish Republican hands as no-go areas, they set up their own no-go areas. Created in the words of Fisk by a few shrewd street leaders, local bookies, garage hands or small businessmen for the most part, they openly paraded as a challenge to the new British Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, William Whitelaw, MP for Penrith and the Border. Thousands upon thousands of Protestants, already impotently patrolling their streets at night after working all day, saw in the UDA a greater protection in the chaos of random killings and sectarian drive-by shootings. And the UDA leaders offering that protection promised them guns. But guns were hard to come by in a world that hated them. And the guns they received were, for the most part, gay wear rifles, smuggled from Germany some 50 years before on the ship the Clyde Valley, and at a different time amid another threat. In fact, any guns that they did import came from cousins and allies in Canada. And remember Hugh Petrie, Bill Craig's bodyguard? Moving in the shadows, he was instrumental in setting up the UDA. Indeed, he and Andy Terry, the present commander, along with two others, went to get arms in London. It was a sting operation, and Petrie forewarned scuttled back to Belfast. When it comes to the Ulster Workers' Council strike in 1974, Hugh Petrie will be seen there again at its very inception, working in the shadows organising. On the 21st of June 1972, the IRA set off 20 bombs over a space of 80 minutes in a busy Belfast. Overwhelmed by the multitude of bombs, many were evacuated into the zone of the next bomb. Nine people were killed and over 130 shoppers maimed, mutilated and injured. The city seemed to go up in flames as smoke rose from every quarter and the nationalist Catholic communities equally recoiled at the carnage. Even the government in Dublin declared a national day of mourning. Six weeks later, the British Army went in and cleared the no-go areas on both Protestant and Catholic sides at the order of a British government, horrified that this latest atrocity had been planned within one of those areas. And among a people driven to a madness that only relentless bombings, an average of four a day, can produce, paramilitary groups proliferated as people flocked to them and the ability of the British Army to protect them clearly discredited by bomb blitz after bomb blitz, by atrocity after atrocity. So vast were the Ulster Protestant working class mobilising that the press, and a society still observing the veneer of normality, voiced constant fears of what became termed the threat of the Protestant backlash. From an increasingly militarised and lawless society, the average Protestant watched the British come up with a plan. It began in what became called the Darlington Conference, then the SDLP, the main Catholic party, until then refusing to engage due to internment, were coaxed in with a promise of concessions. 
The British government conceived that there would be an assembly where all sides would be represented, Catholic and Protestant, and then there would be elections. And the form of the new government could be hammered out later. A green paper was produced, then a white paper suggesting elections to a more representative government. And here was the rub that left also Protestants cold with fury. The white paper, when it was released, also called for a Council of Ireland, a bilateral committee of representatives from both the Irish Republic and Northern Ireland. This body was seen in reality as an embryonic all-Irish government with executive powers into which it was believed both governments would eventually dissolve in a unification of Ireland. And this was not made clear at the time. Enter stage left, Ian Paisley. Born Ian Richard Kyle Paisley in 1926, Paisley was ordained in 1946 and in 1951 co-founded the Free Presbyterian Church. Becoming moderator of the Martyrs Memorial Free Presbyterian Church, he rose to prominence in the 1950s with firebrand public attacks on Roman Catholicism. Throughout the 60s he needlessly antagonised them, where others proselytised, Paisley demonised. His rally addresses led often to disorder and attacks on Catholic businesses as he agitated against the then imagined IRA threat and forced on one occasion the RUC to preempt a threatened march in the Republican area to take down an Irish flag resulting in a riot with many injuries. He opposed the civil rights movement and levelled his equal contempt at the blue-blooded unionists who ran Ulster. His marches such as that through Cromack Square carrying placards resulted in a protracted riot and further rampaging an anti-Catholic disorder for which he was sentenced in the end to three months imprisonment. Paisley harboured a particular hatred for Ulster's Prime Minister at the time, Captain Terence O'Neill, and his liberalising policies towards Catholics. And by running against them in the seat, despite narrowly losing, Paisley was instrumental in O'Neill's resignation. Paisley also put the succeeding Prime Ministers, including Brian Faulkner and his crosshairs, for their liberalising policies and perceived Catholic sympathies. In 1970, he won O'Neill's seat in the by-election. And just as Paisley formed his own church, so in 1971, he formed his own political party, the Democratic Unionist Party. He founded the DUP along with Desmond Bowl, a brilliant academic lawyer whose career had been at Trinity College, Dublin, and who, despite his devotion to Ulster Protestantism, had many Southern Catholic connections. Bowl tempered much of Paisley's behaviour while he remained in Paisley's entourage. Bowl was formerly Stormont MP for the Shankill and, according to the New York Times on the 2nd of April 72, had spent time as a Buddhist monk in Thailand, and I kid you not, crossed into Tibet during the Chinese Cultural Revolution. The Democratic Unionist Party was infused in its higher echelons with Paisley's church followers. Both party and church were created in his own image. Paisley's party appealed to fundamentalist Protestants, as well as the working class as being to the left on social and welfare policies. And the DUP, paradoxically, wanted integration with the UK, but wanted to keep Ulster's more traditional laws. Many critics called it simply the party of Protestant interests. History shows Paisley to have been a narcissist, a shameless self-publicist, craftily obsessed with causing public disorder and keeping himself in the limelight, but in taking followers into public disorder and convictions then disowning him for their actions, many still see him today as a Judas goat. Indeed, many at the time saw him as a Judas goat and hated him. He saw himself as a modern John Knox, thundering out God's word, but in this, many observers saw his power. They saw him as framing a worldview to Ulster Protestants, awakening to a hostile world, shorn of their leaders in terms of biblical certainties. 
Paisley was a rival of Bill Craig, but much less popular, and in 1973 his party was faltering at the polls. Paisley condemned the two-day strike of 1972 at protest at the proroguing of Stormont, saying it would lead the sellout to the IRA. Paradoxically, he was one of the very few Protestant politicians opposed to Faulkner's introduction of internment. He viewed it as unworkable. Even more paradoxically, he proved to be an excellent constituency MP for both Catholic and Protestant. His views meandered, but his narcissism ensured that his followers in the press and the general public were enthralled to have to know each new thought of his. Paisley prided himself on his oratory, his speeches delivered in thunderous words, delivered from the pulpit at his political and public rallies. But if you listen to his sermons or speeches, he is just repeatedly shouting. And that is not oratory, it's simply shouting. And this behaviour simply shows the limits of Paisley's world. Paisley has become in modern times one of the faces most associated with the Troubles, with his resolute defiance in front of the cameras. But this image hides a startling fact. In 1973, Paisley was still clawing back his popularity after alienating a great majority of Ulster Protestantism. And why? In an interview with the Irish Broadcasting Corporation, RTE, on the 25th of November 1971, Paisley had astonished the assembled journalists when he was asked if the Republic ditched its 1937 constitution, which laid claim to Northern Ireland, and certain other laws, would he consider being part of a United Ireland? Paisley had replied that this would present a very different set of circumstances. In another interview on the 29th of November 1971, he had elaborated, saying... If the people of the South really want the Protestants to join them in a united Ireland, then they should scrap entirely the 1937 Constitution and ensure the Roman Catholic hierarchy could no longer exercise an improper influence in politics. If this were done, then the Protestant people would take a different view. Although he went on to say this wouldn't happen, he was mocked to the echo and derided by his own. The Irish Finance Minister and the Taoiseach dryly invited Paisley to come and help them draft a new constitution. The leader of the Provisional IRA wryly declared that the IRA and Paisley were now allies in the cause of United Ireland. The majority of Ulster Protestants reacted with fury and in the wake of those interviews Fisk recites an apocryphal story that a taxi driver declared that he would feel safer driving the Pope of Rome up the Protestant shankle than Paisley. Later related papers show that his comments were made in the context of feelers being put out for talks with a, for a coalition with the SCLP, the mainly Catholic party, formed in the wake of the civil rights movement and dedicated to United Ireland by scrupulously peaceful means. But Paisley was as relentless as he was indomitable and by 1973 his tireless campaigning clawed back much of his support and his stock rose. For many people had short memories but as we shall see, still more didn't. And there things stood. 47 years old at the time of the strike, Paisley was only a player jostling among many stronger, more popular personalities. Anyway, so much for Paisley. So now, when an Irish dimension was proposed, both Paisley's DUP and Bill Craig's Vanguard Party contemned the whole idea from the off. Even the traditional Ulster Unionist Party was split into what would become the pro-white paper and anti-white paper factions. Ulster Protestants were in for one hell of a ride. The Northern Ireland Assembly Bill was passed in the Westminster Parliament and paved the way in late June 1973 amid bombings and an IRA boycott for elections to be held for a new Northern Irish government. Unionists won a healthy 50 of the 78 Assembly seats when the main Catholic Party, the Social Democratic and Labour Party, the SDLP, committed to unification through non-violence, winning 19 of those seats. 
The party set about agreeing a coalition government over the heads of opposing ultra-Protestant parties. To be fair, when people voted, the form of the government and what functions it would have were unclear. The final form of the government and its institutions would only come later. And those forms horrified the majority of ultra-Protestants and justified their fears. Brian Faulkner, as leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, would agree to form a government that opened the door to influence from the Irish Republic. And that was not the ticket he had campaigned on. During the campaign, Faulkner had stated publicly that he would never govern alongside anybody whose primary role was to break the link with Great Britain. And yet here he was, six weeks later, in coalition with the SDLP, a party led by Jerry Fitt, a Belfast socialist, hopelessly optimistic in his demeanour and against the tide of history, a man of great courage and integrity. Five ministries went to Unionists and three DSDLP members, Commerce to John Hume, Housing to Austin Curry, and Social Services to Paddy Devlin. The last portfolio went to Oliver Napier, a solicitor of the Alliance Party, a small party created for Catholics who wished to remain within the United Kingdom, but by now splendidly cross-community in its moderate demographic. But the hated Council of Ireland project could not be agreed upon. As Protestants watched in sullen hatred, as the British government called for a four-day conference inviting the SDLP and Faulknerite Unionists, as well as an army of British civil servants under the Prime Minister Ted Heath and the Irish Taoiseach named Cosgrove with a corresponding army of Irish civil servants, Faulkner went to get assurances from the Dublin government for it to recognise Northern Ireland by removing Articles 2 and 3 of the Constitution which laid claim to her. What resulted was nothing short of a disgrace. He came away with nothing. School tax gloss over it and history forgets it. But what unfolded was an ambush in a pressure cooker atmosphere where the Faulknerite Unionists were overawed. And the worst tactical mistake on the part of the British government was not to invite representatives of the more staunchly pro-Ulster Protestant parties, including Paisley's DUP and Bill Craig's Vanguard, predicting quite accurately that they would disrupt everything the moment the Irish representatives appeared. This exclusion was done at the suggestion of the Irish government and again, Ulster Protestant people were beginning to see a pattern in their perceived malice. Ian Paisley and Bill Craig made real political capital out of this perfidy in excluding the heads of their two substantial parties with Paisley commenting, I am not going cap in hand to any Englishman. And this brings us to the Sunningdale Agreement. A day of scuffles and fistfights by incensed anti-Council of Ireland Protestant Unionists in the Assembly with a backdrop for Faulkner being flown out to hammer out the final form of this new Northern Irish government and its remit. As Faulkner states in his memoirs, For four days, the biggest gathering on record of senior politicians and civil servants from Westminster, the Irish Republic and Northern Ireland deliberated at the Sunningdale Civil Service College, thus giving the agreement its name. It seems to have been a pretext. Everybody had their own agendas and Faulkner loses out. The British side was led by the Prime Minister Ted Heath, including the Attorney General. The Irish team were led by Liam Cosgrave, the Taoiseach himself and Gareth Fitzgerald, his Foreign Minister. And both sides had teams and armies of ministers and civil servants. From the outset, Faulkner and his team representing Northern Ireland's interests seemed to have been overawed and pressured remorselessly. The Council of Ireland concept to give the Irish Republic influence over Northern Ireland was pushed remorselessly at every turn. North Vietnamese negotiators would have been proud. Faulkner's team buckled almost immediately. They agreed to the Council of Ireland and the extension of its powers on a north-south basis without inclusion of the British government as safeguards. 
Faulkner argues this was because of the need for security arrangements with the Republic and against the backdrop of Faulkner states, the fact that it never occurred to unionists to argue that it should be tripartite and that we would in fact have regarded that as weighing the whole structure against us may be illogical, but it underlines how important it seemed for our security to have our future relationship with the Republic firmly in our hands and how unenthusiastic Westminster had become about Northern Ireland's position within the United Kingdom. And so there the stall was laid out, and Faulkner, who had gone there full of speeches and Protestant resolve, buckled. The SDLP were shrewd negotiators, and they too outmanoeuvred him. He thought he had won a concession when he altered the membership of the Council of Ireland by demanding equal representation from North and South. Not two to one in the Republic's favour, to reflect the size of their respective populations. They had blindsided him. They outmanoeuvred him on the harmonisation of laws, the creation of the Council of an all-Ireland government and embryo that could evolve and one day swallow both governments. Faulkner makes much play of the Council being necessary nonsense and the SDLP's insistence on it being mystical nonsense and their determination to drive through the Council concept in the belief, Faulkner thought, that Protestants were a practical people. But to be fair to Faulkner, his main objective was to gain recognition by the Republic of the State of Northern Ireland and full cooperation on security. Faulkner got lost in the plenary sessions and the subcommittees and in the end it seems he could not see the wood for the trees. On the issue of recognition of Northern Ireland, for instance, instead of the Republic removing its claim to Northern Ireland, contained in Articles 2 and 3 of its constitution, Faulkner himself requests a joint declaration to be lodged with the UN. The Irish team objected that to remove its articles was a sellout of its fundamentals and could not be done, and Faulkner feels this is realistic. On the issue of security, the Republic team proposed the Common Irish Court, legislated over by the Council of Ireland, thus giving it judicial as well as legislative powers. Clever move. This issue was kicked off into the long grass for a Law Commission report, with an equal team of Irish and British lawyers reporting back. And this would come back to haunt Faulkner. When they moved on to joint policing under the Council of Ireland, Faulkner's inadvertent omissions of a hard sell that bullied him remorselessly into a corner soon become clear. Faulkner tries to hold out on this, given the British government had complete control over Ulster's policing. And here Ted Heath, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, plays all the pressures and ploys in his power. He indicates that he should now, by now be meeting the Italian Prime Minister and is being delayed. Ted's Heath impatience, says Faulkner, began the show. Heath knew Faulkner. He knew he was a weak man who could not read him. Even when he greeted him very warmly two years before, only to abolish his parliament and his role and his security powers in his own country. This is a British police force, and what Faulkner relates is unthinkable today. Heath, he says, always a rather headstrong man, impatient with obstacles, clearly made up his mind that unionists would have to be made to concede the point if agreement was to be reached. As we continued to discuss through the night, he began to exert pressure on us to agree to a Council of Ireland linked to the RUC. The pressure tactics change. Both parties are cooped up in their rooms. Drafts and revised drafts are sent. Faulkner, a teetotaler, states that they gave their alcohol willingly to the other delegates. Twice Frank Cooper, the permanent secretary, comes round, first with a great offer and then a major concession. When both are rejected, Faulkner relates, At 4pm, a grim Ted Heath descended on our party room, clearly determined to sort us out. Heath tells them their side had already gotten concessions and recognition, which were nothing of the sort, so they must now compromise on policing. 
Faulkner's party hold out. They explained that the Council of Ireland control over the RUC was not only impractical, but absolutely ludicrous. He threatens to publicly blame them for the failure of the talks. Then he tries a different tact. Heath argued with several of the speakers, grew quite irritated, raised his voice heatedly. But by the time that our determination not to concede, says Faulkner, must have been unmistakable, he lapsed into one of his famous silences. After sitting, perhaps, for several minutes, looking over our heads, he suddenly got up and walked out without a word. They clearly begin to buckle, looking for a compromise, losing sight of their mandate. Suddenly they're looking for an equal concession if they compromise on policing to give it a link to the Council of Ireland and the All-Ireland Dimension. Their assumed concessions are Heath's meaningless agreement to give Northern Ireland security powers back once the emergency situation is over, which, with the IRA campaign, it never would be and the SDLP supporting the idea of reappropriating security, which was not going to happen, as long as the police and special branch powers were separated, the Assange, Jean Hume's Catholic lack of identification argument. Eventually, the names of the police authority appointed by the Northern Ireland government would simply be referred to the Council of Ireland for their views only. But why do this at all? This was another territorial concession, and not the token link Faulkner called it. And in this... We see the nature of the hard sell bullying that was taking place by those hostile to or having a completely disinterested contempt for Ulster Protestants. And in the middle of this, Faulkner reports the bullying that even he fails to recognise. At 6.15am, says Faulkner, on Sunday, Heath called a break in the talks and everybody went off to the rooms for a wash before an early breakfast. While I was sitting with my colleagues eating breakfast, says Faulkner, and feeling a little revived by the food, Heath stopped by my chair on his way in and asked when I thought we should reconvene. As cheerfully as I could manage, I said, why after breakfast, of course. Heath, he relates, shook his head with an absolute look of horror and wandered off without saying anything. And Faulkner goes on. It was eventually decided to give people a few hours to catch up on sleep and we met again for discussion in the afternoon. There were signs of softening of the SDLP and Heath's approaches and although progress remained very slow, we began to believe that an agreement could be reached. It was 8.21am, he says, when we reached complete agreement. Overawed and bullied, the Faulknerite party tried to make a virtue of their work, yet they had gained nothing in terms of security and recognition, and they had sacrificed much. The Council of Ireland, the way it was raised, was clearly intended as an embryonic all-Irish government, and they had let it in on most fronts. The only concession was limiting it, but a door opened, even slightly ajar, is nevertheless an open door. Outmanoeuvred and pressured, Faulkner's delegation seemed to fall into a degree of Stockholm Syndrome. He relates that they felt they had come off best. As Faulkner explicitly states, he states, We felt elated and expected our achievements to be recognised. One of them even concluded ominously that Sunningdale will go down in history as a unionist victory. Faulkner even does a somersault in his logic. He seems to imply that although the Council of Ireland was a necessary concession to the SDLP and Dublin government, it was even, he implies, some sort of a victory for him, since the Council of Ireland concept had been rejected outright by the Irish government in 1920, as implying recognition of the state of Northern Ireland. And thus deluded, Faulkner's party went home. Instead of the hard sell and the holdout they convinced themselves this had been, soon the Protestant majority would see it as a sellout to a cold hell. When they were elected, the government was some way off. Therefore, the populace had not voted for this. Such a proposed fundamental territorial adjustment 
would normally, as a matter of course, in a civilised country, be put to a vote or a plebiscite. But the Irish government had an ideologically rapacious agenda and the British were in a hurry to get out and to detach Northern Ireland's problems from infecting and polluting British political life. And so all the problems crystallise here as the Supremo of the UDA, Andy Terry, would observe in expressing his contempt for this compliant ruling class that had acted out their dramas and assumptions of power over the Austro-Protestant people who had been nothing but as loyal as dogs to them for a lifetime. And I quote him from Connell Parr in his excellent cultural response to and the legacies of Sunningdale. He says, The Unionist politicians, Captain Terence O'Neill, Brand Faulkner and all the rest, just took us for granted. The fascinating thing was that this was the first time that people had said, Hold on, we've had enough of this, carry on. The Council of Ireland was imposed on us. We weren't told, we weren't considered in the argument at all. It wasn't about the SDLP being in government. It was about the attitude of unionist politicians. They never were used to making decisions from partition here. They allowed the civil service to run the place and it got that bad that we were the lesser known people in the British government. Our politicians hadn't a sense to realise they weren't important. They were ambushed. Politicians of Faulkner's ilk were by now an anachronism after five years of bombing. Faulkner and politicians who accompanied him had ruled for over 50 years, rarely challenged. But the population he claimed to represent became ever more disgruntled and resentful at what they came to call his political somersault. He had gone to secure security and recognition for Ulster. And no one in their number was exactly sure what he had come back with, except that it seemed to be the opposite of that. History will show that Faulkner had a fault line in the Ulster Protestant psyche. To politicians, diplomacy means keeping all sides happy and reaching an accommodation to please nobody. But to a nation under a relentless existential threat, diplomacy had all the appearance of simple duplicity. And this was viewed as nothing less than a betrayal. And all of this would rebound on Faulkner and his supporters, especially the joint declaration that the Irish government no longer laid claim to Northern Ireland, lodged in the United Nations. In 1973, Kevin Boland, a former Irish minister who had resigned in solidarity when two other Irish government ministers were sacked amid accusations of grun running to the IRA, brought a case against the Sunningdale Joint Declaration to the Irish Supreme Court. Boland claimed that the joint communique recognising Northern Ireland could not be reconciled with the Irish Republic's jurisdictional claim to Northern Ireland in Articles 2 and 3 of its 1937 constitution. The Dublin government ran a technical defence that it had not actually recognised Northern Ireland. And this was all, by the way, being followed avidly by Protestants in the North. Bill Craig would say that he took more notice of the Irish government's statement in the Boland case than the Dublin government's later attempt to calm the issue on the 13th of March. And despite the sensational prominence the case was given in the press, Brian Faulkner would meet Liam Cosgrove, the Irish Taoiseach, soon after, and again accepted his excuses. Protestants looked askance, and then were outraged at the audacity with which they saw themselves being walked over. And so, the territorial recognition Faulkner assured us that he had got was a nonsense. And while all this was happening, the Irish government, attempting to trump the vocal opposition of the Fianna Fáil party to the Sunningdale Agreement puffed up the Council of Ireland's importance until it became a virtual assertion that the Council of Ireland was indeed a path to United Ireland. At the same time the SDLP stoked Protestant concerns by echoing some of the comments of the Irish government. Hugh Logue for instance, an SDLP councillor, 
also horrified Protestants when he assured their supporters that the Council of Ireland was a vehicle which would, quote, trundle unionists in the United Ireland. The majority of Ulster Protestants had their worst fears confirmed and the siege mentality set in. Indeed, Faulkner's other red line security cooperation was made a mockery of when the Law Commission they agreed at Sunningdale reported back. It stated that the extradition of terrorists to Northern Ireland was impossible under their constitution. Even the idea of extrajudicial courts to try terrorists, the Irish said, would require a change in the constitution by referendum, and that would not be happening in the short term. This report would come back in May at a crucial time, and Faulkner said nothing until it was released. And so the Protestant majority got nothing out of Sunningdale. The security and recognition had been nothing of the sort. To the average man on the street, it looked like the Dublin government was playing with them. Unfortunately for Faulkner and his team, Ulster Protestant voters and their spokesmen would soon get a chance to regroup and make their cold fury known. On the 4th of January, Faulkner's own Unionist Party, deeply conservative and nodding donkeys for 50 years, called a conference and voted 427 to 374 against the Council of Ireland. Faulkner, in response, resigned, taking his group of loyal members with him and continued to rule in a coalition government as a Prime Minister without a party. Faulkner's place on the Ulster Unionist Party was taken by Harry West. As Don Anderson states, the Unionist Party, the party of government for 50 years in Northern Ireland, the party of the Protestant establishment ascendancy, the party still regarded by the majority of Protestants as a respectable representation of their causes and beliefs, the very fact that this party had been abandoned by Faulkner and his faction weakened Faulkner's political base considerably. Enter stage left, the new also Unionist Party leader, Harry West. Harry West was born in March 1917 and was 57 at the time of the Ulster Workers' Council strike. He entered Stormont as far back as 1954 and held a portfolio of the Minister of Agriculture throughout the tenures of Lord Brookborough and Captain Terence O'Neill. He would, in short, come to be regarded respectfully by the working class leaders when the Ulster Workers' Council strike came in 1974 as the Farmers' MP. He was a fierce critic of Sunningdale and the Council of Ireland and held highest stock next to Bill Craig in the eyes of the strikers, well above Paisley. And when he spoke for farmers' interests, they conceded on virtually every point. His involvement explains, probably, much of the rural support amongst Protestant farmers for the strike. Nobody would ever accuse him of being an intellectual giant as speeches were written for him, but therein lay his charm. His only act which blotted his copybook was his invitation to Enoch Powell, a deeply controversial figure in England, to observe the events leading up to the strike. The remaining three Unionist parties, Paisley's DUP, Bill Craig's Vanguard Party and Harry West's Ulster Unionist Party, together formed an alliance against the Council of Ireland when it was passed into law called the United Ulster Unionist Council or simply the Treble UC. The greatest threats made strange bedfellows. A year before, Paisley was describing Craig as of limited intelligence and Craig was calling Paisley a bankrupt man. Now they had buried their differences and the battle lines were drawn. The anti-agreement Protestant Assembly members were determined then when the Northern Ireland Assembly under Faulkner's chief executive met at Stormont on the 22nd of January 1974 to rob it of any credibility or dignity. After months of causing disruptions, sometimes descending into fistfights in the chamber, they refused to vacate the front bench in the order of the Speaker. There was uproar. 
with one member taking the microphone, a vanguard member doing a war dance atop the tables and hurling chairs in his indignant fury, while Paisley was calling points of order amid shouting accusations that the Assembly had 40 armoured cars of the British Army to enforce its will. And in the middle of all this commotion, William Beattie of the DUP, one of Paisley's men, took the mace, the very symbol of authority, off the table and passed it to Bill Craig, and a game of TIG followed, taking it back to the back benches. It was four minutes to the first suspension, with four more disruptions following that afternoon, until a total of 18 members of the anti-Sunningdale Agreement MPs were hauled by police out of the chamber at the call of the Sergeant of Arms of the House, and all unceremoniously and humiliatingly dumped on the front steps outside, amongst the crowd of reporters who pushed through the IUC and Army Military Police in the Red Caps to report these unprecedented events. But the Northern Ireland Assembly went on and the ministers settled into the rules and Faulkner ruled the whole province. They had the majority, they had the support of the British and Irish governments and they had the support of the British Army in the province, the RUC and the whole panoply of power in the Northern Irish state. Well, that is until the British government called a general election on the 20th of February 1974. The Treble UC Alliance of Ulster Protestant Parties fielded 12 candidates in that election one in each of the 12 of the constituencies, and they won 11 of them. Ian Paisley was the sole DUP member elected. The Vanguard Party won three seats, including Bill Craig, while the old Ulster Unionist Party, now shed of its blue bloods, still having attraction with respectable middle-class and working-class voters, won seven of the seats. The election had been close in the UK, and the Conservatives, bizarrely, under Ted Heath, offered Harry West the coalition to allow them to stay in power. And instead a new Labour government took power under Harold Wilson. In no time the Northern Irish had a new British pro-consul to rule him, Merlin Rees, MP for Leeds South. A Welshman, an ex-schoolmaster, a war veteran, sensitive, some would say oversensitive. But Rees, as a man, is very hard to dislike. As a career politician who had frequently visited Northern Ireland, Merlin Rees would soon blot his copybook, however, in Ulster Protestant eyes, when the contents of a letter he wrote to an Irish woman in Dundalk were published. We have not the faintest desire to stay in Ireland, he had assured her, and the sooner we are out the better. This gave the IRA a propaganda coup, and despite the new Secretary of State for Northern Ireland's attempts to contextualise his words, this gave another good reason for Ulster Protestants to deeply distrust him. Rees's Minister of State, which means junior government minister there to support, Merlin Rees was Stan Orm. Stan Orm was a Labour, par a Labour member of Parliament for Salford West. He was even less acceptable to the Ulster Protestants. Stan Orm was a notorious anti-Ulster Protestant who had supported the Catholic civil rights, indeed stayed with them in solidarity in Derry for a fortnight and been prominent at the forefront of their marches. A public supporter of the United Ireland, Stan Orm had no sympathy for Ulster Protestants. And the coming of these two men was welcomed by a renewed, sustained bombing campaign by the IRA with bomb blitzes in Bangor, Lisburn and Belfast. And to show the measure of Stanley Orm, when taxed by a Lisburn shopkeeper whose premises had just been gutted by an IRA firebomb, he would comment loudly on the amount of money the British taxpayer was spending in compensation in Ulster. Basil McIver, Faulkner's Minister of Education, according to Fisk, who was with him at the time, winced visibly. When a series of IRA explosions went off again in the heart of Belfast on the 29th of March, when a bomb in a hijacked vehicle consisting of half a ton of explosives blew up outside the Grand Central Hotel, extensively damaging the heart of Belfast city centre and injuring 24 civilians. 
Faulkner, who was quick onto the scene, was surrounded and insulted by bystanders, enraged that they had compromised everything and got nothing in return. We are not going to be licked by these bloody murderers, Faulkner declared, obviously taken back by the hostility. Merlin Reese, who had come straight from a security meeting to witness the carnage, was also surrounded by furious bystanders who vented their fury, born out of feelings of sheer powerlessness and exasperation. The bombs were still going off, on average four a day. On Protestant streets, the fury was palpable. And on the back of this election result, as Merlin Reese and Stan Orm came to the province to take up their new rules, the treble UC demanded new assembly elections by pointing out the basis of the assembly and law was that it must have widespread support in the community, and that meant both communities. And the results of the February national election patently demonstrated that it no longer had the widespread support needed amongst Ulster Protestants. The Ulster Protestant parties now argued that they had campaigned under the slogan that Dublin is only a Sunningdale away. The majority of the Protestant community, they argued, had clearly rejected Sunningdale and the Council of Ireland through the ballot box. But Faulkner refused to listen. He had the support of his coalition partners. He had the support of his followers. He enjoyed the support of the majority in the Assembly as well as the patronage of two governments. Give us four years till the next election, he seemed to be saying, and you will see how well we do. You will accept it. Until then, you can do nothing about it. On the 19th of March, 1974, a motion was proposed on behalf of the Treble UC calling for a complete renegotiation of the constitutional settlement, particularly to get rid of the Council of Ireland. The debate dragged on for two months. Faulkner proposed an amendment on the part of the executive that the commitments entered into at Sunningdale must be honoured and in so doing the constitutional arrangements must succeed. So furious were the anti-Sunningdale members of the Protestant parties that Faulkner, speaking for 36 minutes, was interrupted by shouted insults 130 times. At one stage, Bill Craig, marvelling at the remorseless professional attitude of the mainly Catholic SDLP, now fielding government ministers, turned to a fellow Vanguard member and intimated that the best way to destroy their own alliance was simply to put them in power. The point he was making that for all their fury and alliance, they were no more than a loosely bound coalition with large numbers of their own assembly politicians, either in the assembly through being thrust there or through a sense of entitlement. The answer, Craig concluded, lay in the workplaces, the farms and the social clubs of ordinary Ulster Protestants. Left outnumbered in the assembly, Dwarfed in the British Parliament, despite scooping 11 of the 12 Northern Irish seats, the British government could safely and sniffily ignore them. Orders were therefore given to the Vanguard Party members to mobilise support in the towns, the cities, the factories and the countryside. Bill Craig, Ian Paisley and Harry West and their alliance of parties then used the procedural ploy at the end of the three-day debate so they could avoid a vote by spinning it out in the freewheeling political discussion where the media took their sound bites, and it dragged on and on and on, until eventually the Assembly resolved that a vote on the anti-power sharing motion would take place on a day that was a rendezvous with history, the 14th of May 1974. The treble UC knew it would lose the vote, but the spinning out of the debate gave space for the marshalling of Ulster Protestant resentment, and a fixed date they express it. In April, the IRA bombing blitz continued without relent. Belfast was hit by another bomb blitz, and bomb hoaxes paralysed the capital and closed off all major roads. Fifteen incendiary bombs were found in Belfast businesses alone. 
10 incendiary bombs gutted 10 shops in Armagh, causing an estimated £3 million worth of damage. And in the first two weeks of May leading up to the strike, there were 11 killings and 13 more explosions. And against this backdrop, the Irish Taoiseach Liam Cosgrove added more fuel to the fire by going to London to meet the British Prime Minister Harold Wilson to press for the implementation of the Sunningdale Agreement in the Irish Dimension. Their joint communique, carried by National Press, stated that their talks had cleared the way for Sunningdale. Faulkner was furious. He was furious at this continued Irish interference, which gave the clear impression that his assembly was irrelevant and recriminated that the Irish were piling on even more pressure without living up to even one of their assurances. All of this confirmed the view of the Ulster Protestant majority that they were being corralled in the extinction by voracious enemies. And out on the streets, the Protestant paramilitaries reacted. The threat of a Protestant backlash was voiced more and more. And not for the last time, the Protestant paramilitaries came together to form the Ulster Army Council. Northern Ireland, you see, had been a civic society, ordered, lawful, its land quiet like any other nation, until the madness of sectarian hatred erupted. It had not been a just society, but civil, ordered and lawful nevertheless. Poor living conditions were uneven, but nevertheless, poor living conditions were the theme. Without the B-specials, left of their own defences, many groups proliferated in the Ulster Protestant surge towards self-defence. Of course, in place of the B-specials, the British created an army regiment, the Ulster Defence Regiment. But it was a wing of the British Army, and the army were by now viewed as too distant, too small a number, and too unconcerned with the protection of ordinary people where it mattered, on the streets, in their workplaces, and in their daily lives. Working-class Protestants looked in desperation towards the paramilitaries. In former times, a young man who believed in Ulster and in law and order would have applied to join the B-Special Constabulary and been vetted as regards their character. Now they were abandoned. All of them were abandoned. And the good were sometimes overtaken by the bad, and the bad in some areas would be overtaken by the worst. But the impulse in young Ulster Protestants to defend their communities was diverted from state regulation and into an unsupervised martial abyss. And when these paramilitary organisations emboldened created political parties, even their own rank and file, especially in the UDA, were astute enough not to vote for them. They weren't stupid, they desired no tyranny. And by 1973, they had no wish to upset the apple cart of the Treble UC Alliance. Something had to be done to stop Republican violence, and history forgets that in these early years, it was genuinely believed, five years into the trouble, that the violence could be stopped. So in the wake of the ratification of Sunningdale and the threat they saw on the Council of Ireland to their very existence, these Protestant groups combined to form an umbrella paramilitary group called the Ulster Army Council. And in this unprecedented time of threat, the Ulster Army Council, alliance of paramilitary organisations, became one of the frustrated voices of working class Ulster Protestants, and they are worthy at least enough to list. First we have the Ulster Volunteer Force, or the UVF. These were the most ruthless of the paramilitary organisations. The UVF were organised by the charismatic Gusty Spence from prison, where, like the IRA, they drilled and lived on a military basis. I say paramilitary because at the time of the strike, they, along with Sinn Féin, the IRA's political wing, had been legalised. More accurately, they were extremely effective terrorists, moving through their areas, some 1,500 strong in their distinctive black leather jackets, and as the years would show, 
equal to the IRA in their tenacity, ferocity and savagery. At this time, most of their victims were Catholics picked at random in a futile attempt to cow the growing militancy in Catholic areas. At this time, Gusty Spence was slowly moving away from this position and advocating an end to attacks on civilians, but it made no difference. Since Spence was serving a life sentence for murder, the Chief of Staff in 1974 at the time of the Ulster Workers' Council strike was Ken Gibson, Brigadier General, as he's described, a skilled manual worker and an ex-member of Paisley's Church. Ken Gibson was also the main spokesman for the organisation. He had spent 1973 interned by the British government. The membership of the UVF was more elitist and their policies focused on social deprivation and the poor state of housing in Protestant areas, leading to many unionist politicians to accuse them of communist leanings. Allied to the UVF was another smaller, mostly Belfast-based group, the Red Hand Commandos. As Martin Dillon says of them, the composition of this group was highly selective and it was very secret in its operations. Its membership composed in the main of Protestant youths, Tartans, who roamed the streets at night looking for trouble. Their leader, John McCaig, lost his authority on the grounds of starting unauthorised riots and being, to use the Belfast parlance of the time, a fruit. In 1972, it became an integral part of the UVF and on the operational level shared weapons, although keeping its own structures. The Red Hand Commando often carried out attacks in the name of the UVF. Some estimates put its active membership at up to 1,000. But the largest of the groupings in 1974 was the Ulster Defence Association, claiming at that time upwards of 40,000 members. The UDA rose out of the street vigilantes of varying sizes formed to patrol the streets of Protestant working class areas in the wake of IRA attacks, random abductions and drive-by shootings. The main drivers in its creation were the largest vigilante groups, the Shankill and Woodfield Defence Associations, victim to loose leadership, ruled by an inner council of brigadiers, with almost feudal autonomy, its leadership had been fractious, and after internal feuding and murder, Andy Terry, a gardener and former shop steward, now ruled the organisation skillfully. The UDA had the numbers and the muscle to create no-go areas when it suited them, and their military marches were meant as shows of strength to all opponents. Their rivals called them Wombles after furry characters on a popular television show for children, in reference to their ubiquitous use of fur-trimmed army parka jackets alongside dark glasses and a variety of military headgear in their powerful marches. From protecting their areas, the UDA brigadiers came to enforce their writ and dominate them, and despite being legal, largely due to their numbers, they were soon enforcing their discipline against anti-social elements in their areas through beatings and romperings, this being a type of intense, brutal beating carried out in disused buildings, warehouses, above bars, or in their drinking clubs, often resulting in murder. The main problem lay in their origins and their loose recruitment methods and their inability to vet recruits. The vast majority of the rank and file were hard-working, honest men committed the Ulster and to defending their families, looking for security in the wake of the disbanding of the B-Specials. In former times, these decent men would have had the vetting and government oversight the B-Specials benefited from. The UDA had happened around them in what most would come to see as a Faustian pact of sorts. And as time went on, criminality would rise to the top in certain areas, causing splits in the organisation. Consequently, in years to come, many deserted the organisation en masse. Their nom de guerre was the Ulster Freedom Fighters, who their killings were attributed to. They also prided themselves on their several women units, mostly involved in community work. Next, we have the most genteel of the Protestant paramilitary groups, 
the Down Orange Welfare. The Down Orange Welfare was an organisation that spanned rural farming communities in County Down. It was formed by Lieutenant Colonel Edward James Augustus Howard Brush and Herbert Heslip, both then members of the Ulster Unionist Party. Its membership was elitist in nature and mostly officered by former B Specials and retired Army veterans. Colonel Brush was born in 1901 and by 1974 was already in his 70s. He was a scion of a military family and a graduate of Sandhurst. He was also a war veteran, wounded in France in 1940 and a prisoner of war for three years. Put on the retirement list, he had remained active while he could in the British Territorial Army. He had even served the term as Lord Lieutenant of County Down, greeting royalty and dignitaries in the ceremonial role until resigning the post in protest at Sunningdale. British officers were often entertained at his Georgian mansion in Dromoy with dry sherries and tactics talk over fine cigars. Greatly opposed to Sunningdale, he had first come to national press attention when it was revealed that he was drilling his own Protestant paramilitary force, claiming over 5,000 trained activists who adopted the name the Down Orange Welfare, which reflected its nobler aims. Colonel Brush had been posted in India in the 30s and as a young British officer had witnessed firsthand the mass passive resistance protests of Mahatma Gandhi and they became his inspiration. The strikers on the UWC would call him Basil Brush in reference to a children's popular puppet character on the 1970s BBC television on Saturday afternoons whose catchphrase was boom boom. Next come the Orange Volunteers. The Orange Volunteers headed by Bob Marno, a fitter from Gallagher's Tobacco Company was a paramilitary vigilante movement up to 200 to 500 strong, though some put them in the thousands, who drew the bulk of its membership from the Orange Order. They too mostly consisted of act servicemen, with their uniform consisting of a maroon beret and black dress uniform bearing their insignia. More often they wore American-style combat jackets. The Orange Volunteers was an organisation concentrated mostly in East Belfast, Sandy Row and North Down. The august church-going leadership of the Orange Order had a preference for established law and with it an instinctive dislike for paramilitarism and would never fully endorse the Orange Volunteers. Up to this point, the Orange Volunteers organisation confined itself to vigilante patrols to safeguard its areas. There was very little violence attached to it in 1974. Next comes the Vanguard Service Corps which consisted of a couple of hundred men in their distinctive uniform who served as a guard of honour at many of the vanguard rallies held by Bill Craig. It was led by Hugh Petrie, who also acted as Bill Craig's bodyguard. The Vanguard Service Corps was created by militants within the vanguard movement who simply wanted to do more. There is little violence attached to it. Indeed, members were prohibited from committing acts of criminality. Hugh Petrie was central to the creation of the Ulster Workers' Council, and we'll come back to him in a minute. But the final Protestant paramilitary organisation in 1974 was possibly the oddest of all, and a very strange bedfellow to those I've mentioned at the beginning. This was the Ulster Special Constabulary Association. The Ulster Special Constabulary Association was made up of former members of the disbanded B Special Auxiliary Police Force. It began as a pressure group for tougher action against the IRA. It could theoretically call upon 10,000 men all of them former B Special Constables, all of them with an innate instinct for upholding law and order. Many Catholics still smarting would fervently and vehemently disagree with this, but these men prided themselves in the fact that when their organisation was disbanded, every weapon was handed back to lawful authority and their equipment fully accounted for. 
It would be an odd sight to see during the Ulster Workers' Council strike when retired special constables could be seen cooperating on the streets with the paramilitary UDN-UVF who harboured murderers among their numbers, setting up roadblocks in the initial stage of the stoppage. But strange times breed strange alliances and even stranger bedfellows. Because their leadership and rank and file were innately conservative, they were uncomfortable with links with paramilitaries or more violent organisations. Although participants in the coming strike, they would soon revert to form and distance themselves completely from all future paramilitary associations, as well as links with a new and modern breed of politician. Their association would disband soon after the strike, and there is little, actually no violence attached to their association. Yet in 1974, like most Protestants, these special constables felt the existential threat to Northern Ireland and took part in the stoppage. Their chairman, George Green, a councillor on Downborough Council, would hold a seat on the Ulster Workers' Council. There were other small organisations that the madness of four bombs a day and 50 shootings produces, but they are not part of the story. Swarming around the paramilitary groups at the barricades were crowds of youths, formed in ad hoc gangs called Tartans, wearing denim, high jeans and boots, identified by their distinctive Burberry Tartan scarves, probably originating from the gangs they witnessed in Glasgow on trips to watch the Glasgow Rangers football team among their cousins and allies in Scotland. And as the paramilitary groupings came together, the regular meetings were chaired by Glenn Barr, a vanguard assembly representative and a member of the UDA. And after yet another meeting in the Royal Bar in the Protestant Shankill, the Ulster Army Council released a long and violent statement to the press. Calling for fresh assembly elections, their statement read by astonished journalists concluded, they, the British government, are now playing with a straw that could break the camel's back. If Westminster is not prepared to restore democracy, i.e. the will of the people made clear in an election, then the only other way it can be restored is by a coup d'etat. As this umbrella organisation of paramilitaries of varying degrees of militancy looked for a suitable mechanism to vent their frustration at Sunningdale in the Irish dimension, they looked around for a workers' movement they could give their support to. The previous association, the Loyalist Association of Workers Law, was defunct. But a representative of a new group, the Ulster Workers' Council, made up of trade union officials, attended one of their meetings at the invitation of the group. This led to other meetings and they agreed to the A's. At one meeting, a man called Harry Murray, a senior shop steward on the shipyard, surveyed their number and asked in reference to the defunct paramilitary supporting Loyalist Association of Workers, who were blamed for the carnage of Ulster's Day of Shame in 1973, where are the phantoms? In the cause of Protestant Ulster, they agreed to coordinate. And now we come to the villains or the heroes of the peace, the Ulster Workers' Council. It was the formation of the Ulster Workers' Council that would provide the impetus, leadership and the voice of the coming National Rebellion. In November 1973, Hugh Petrie, Bill Craig's bodyguard and a shorts aircraft factory worker, together with another vanguard man, started putting out feelers to gain contacts in the power stations, the grain mills and the tobacco and engineering factories. They travelled the length of the east of the province through the Protestant heartlands garnering support for more direct strike action, verging on rebellion. The main meetings of the Ulster Workers' Council took place in Bill Craig's Vanguard Party headquarters in a rented house in Hawthornden Road, a detached house in a prosperous area of East Belfast. And this was no accident. 
Hugh Petrie, as Craig's bodyguard, had full access and the secret endorsement of Craig, who had suffered a great degree of fallout from the debacle of the 1973 strike. Preferring to stay in the shadows, Petrie was an organiser and had searched for a replacement workers' council since the collapse of the previous Protestant Workers' Association. This was outside the trade union structures, as we will see. He had viewed the Loyalist Association of Workers as too dominated by paramilitaries. Bill Craig had secretly held a meeting in Dobbins Hotel in Carrickfergus to discuss a permanent strike that would bring the province to its knees and demonstrate the force of Protestant protest and make them a voice to be reckoned with. Many of the power station workers attended, including Billy Kelly, a trade unionist to whom most of the power workers looked for a lead. And while this was all happening, Petrie and his colleagues, Harry Fletcher, a magistrate and a councillor from Sandy Row, and Jim Smith, uh, out of work but a man with an eloquent way of putting an argument across, went to Lorne and the factories in the East Antrim Industrial Belt to organise their strike. When the main meeting happened at Horfunden Road, a number of them attended. Some of Petrie's existing supporters were there, as well as Bob Pagels, a UDA member, a smartly dressed man in his 30s and out of work. Joe Barkley, a shipyard stager, turned up, as well as an out-of-work strange but very articulate man in his 30s called Sammy Smith, who would become UWC Propaganda Minister. Morris Jamison from Gallagher's Tobacco Factory in York Street attended to represent his fellow workmen. Another man who in two weeks would become a household name by the name of Harry Murray, a senior trade unionist in the shipyard from Bangor, also turned up. Murray's easy-going nature and likeability endeared him to the more close-natured Petrie, who appointed him chairman on seeing his gifts. Harry Murray would pay for the initial Ulster Workers' Council meetings from funds raised from collections from shipyard workers, who were 95% Protestant. Hugh Petrie wanted Harry Murray as chair because he was unblemished, having had no paramilitary connections and having an innate dislike and distrust of politicians, which he would never have any cause to change. Within months, as Fisk states, journalists from every continent would come to seek interviews with him. Yet given Hugh Petrie's involvement in the formation of the Ulster Workers' Council as Bill Craig's bodyguard and the ready offer of the headquarters of the Vanguard Party in Hawthorne and Road to hold their meetings, there still lingers a strong suspicion that Craig had originally been trying to create a workers' association that Vanguard rather than the paramilitaries could control, but it didn't work out like that. An ideal workers' council representative strategy was not to rely on a mass walkout, but to garner support of all the key workers in the key industries, a strategy which would allow a small number of workers to bring Ulster to its knees. Don Anderson relates the story that one day in the middle of March, Harry Murray and his dinner hour at the shipyard set off to, as he said, organise oil. He walked the Musgrave Yard and spoke to two men at the gate. Allowed in, soon the oil workers were mobilising and attending Ulster Workers' Council meetings and the UWC now had a long reach into the oil supply, all of which came through Sydenham Oil Refinery. And this was a hell of an achievement for a single working class man on his dinner hour. But, as Anderson says, revolutions indeed happen in odd ways. But the Ulster Workers' Council's real power, their ultimate trump card lay on Billy Kelly and the support he had as a trade union organiser at Ballylumford Power Station. And Billy Kelly had been pushing for a mass strike using power as a weapon from the very beginning. And this was the true genius of their strategy and why. Ballylumford Power Station held a unique prominence over the daily running of Ulster life. Northern Ireland, you see, was powered by four power stations. A station near Derry, Londonderry called Kulkira, with a 40% Catholic workforce, 60% Protestant. 
and there were two lesser coal-fired stations on each side of the Lagan in Belfast, called Station East and Station West. But by far the most important power station was Bully Lumford Power Station on the remote promontory of Island McGee. The remoteness of the plant, set in an obscure corner in a Protestant heartland, was prompted by war planning in the wake of Luftwaffe bombing raids on Belfast, as well as its abundance of cooling water and its proximity to the coal mines in Scotland. It was an extensive complex visible from 35 miles out to sea, and it supplied well over half of Northern Ireland's electricity, averaging a daily of 750 megawatts. And the key men of the workforce were almost entirely Protestant, given its location, and almost all of them, led by their enigmatic Pentecostalist union leader, Billy Kelly, were UWC men. Billy Kelly had been at all the early Loyalist workers' meetings at Royal Avenue and was a driving force in the UWC from the beginning. Originally a crane driver from the old Harbour Power Station in Belfast, and 20 years before that, at the Gasworks, he had always been fascinated by the growing complexity and self-contained nature of the Northern Ireland electricity system. He realised that there was no connection with the mainland British grids and that this system was self-contained. He realised that the 3,500 manual workers, more particularly his core followers of 500 engineers and charge hands working the plant, could, if mobilised correctly, control the entire lifeblood of the province and put a chokehold on the entire commerce, industry and daily life of Ulster. Kelly had used the two-day strike in 1972, two years before as a dry run, to prove to himself he could do it. And among Protestant workers, they were giants. And Kelly, along with Tom Beattie, the engineer who designed the cuts in the system, that gently powered the turbines down in 1972, carried the plan to cut the supply without damaging the machinery around all four power stations and won the support of the majority of the now politicised power workers to take control of the electricity supply under the noses of their management and their senior executives. The only perceived flaw in the plan was an interconnector which was connected to the electricity network in the Republic of Ireland that alternated access supply into each other's systems. And it would take days during the strike for the Northern Ireland Electricity Service senior managers to convince a suspicious UWC leadership that the interconnector had been helpfully blown up by the IRA in 1973 and that it had been too dangerous for the technicians to repair it. So the plan was devastatingly simple. One third of Ulster's generated power went to industry, the rest to hospitals, utilities, sewage pumps and the electricity people and shops used in their daily lives. The generating capacity was 1,350 megawatts but the system generated daily 750 megawatts and that was enough. The day, of the, the day the strike was announced, Kelly ordered the power generated to be reduced to 400 megawatts, cutting out all of that available for industry altogether. How it was allocated was up to their enemies in Stormont, but the real genius of the plan was that it was unbreakable. You, why not send in the army or more likely naval technicians to run the system? Surely it isn't much different to running a ship or a submarine. When the British Army sent men in secretly, they realised that they could not understand the complexity of the system in the form of the consoles in the two control rooms beside the turbine halls, or the electricity turbines themselves, or the axial load indicators, which would, if handled incompetently, cause a multi-million pound hydrogen explosion plunging Ulster into months, possibly years of darkness. Billy Kelly knew the power workers on mainland Britain, as they saw it, were too unionised and too intimidated by events in Northern Ireland to lend a hand in frustrating their plan. 
Add to that the fact that the system was run based on a 300-page manual, all three of which were hidden from army eyes, the Phase 2 turbine manuals consisting of 6,300-page manuals. But even beyond this, the system was run in the personal notebooks of the engineers, who, despite all of their training, jotted every customised jolt and incident in the system and had to work under supervision there for six months before they were viewed as competent. In short, the system was utterly incomprehensible to anybody except the 500 engineers and charge hands, even the top management. In effect, the pressure group, the men of the Ulster Workers' Council had therefore soon assured themselves of the support of the power workers in the electricity power stations and in the oil refineries and the depots. Using the bottleneck of power, they could threaten to throttle the power out of Northern Irish society. They truly believed that ordinary Ulster Protestant workers would instinctively support the revolt and join the strike. But if not, given the factories and offices would be forced to close in the ensuing power shortage, there would be no work to go to. And the beauty of the plan was that once the power was reduced by a third, the onus would fall on the power-sharing executive in the form of Bram Faulkner and the SDLP Minister of Commerce, John Hume, to choose where that power went. And if he did not cut off industry, then the blame for any hardships in the hospitals and homes and emergency services would fall on both him and Faulkner's entire executive. But not to repeat the mistakes of the day of shame in 1973, it was essential that there be no violence. In order to achieve this, the UWC would need to coordinate with the seven paramilitary groups on the Ulster Army Council, and especially the three of the seven who were renowned for the use of violence, the UDA, the UVF and the Red Hand Commando. And this explains why Harry Murray attended the Ulster Army Council meeting one evening and that the two groups agreed to liaise. And just as the Ulster Army Council sought to co-opt the Ulster Workers' Council, so the Ulster Workers' Council co-opted the Ulster Army Council. And they set up a coordinating committee, first numbering 21, but then reduced to 13 members. Ken Gibson represented the UVF. Andy Terry, with the most clout, represented the UDA. And Glenn Barr, the UDA spokesman, was made chairman of the Ulster Workers' Council. Glenn Barr, as Fisk, author of the excellent book, The Point of No Return, and the then Times correspondent describes him, was a young, personable, energetic, handsome and sometimes rash man. Anderson describes him as young, neatly groomed, energetic, plausible and fluent. Glenn Barr was a trade union shop steward at Kulkira Power Station, as well as a UDA commander and thus acceptable to both councils but he was also an elected assemblyman for the Vanguard Party. So with a foot in all three factions, who were coordinating with each other, the trade unionists, the paramilitaries and the politicians, he was unanimously made chairman. He had already convened and chaired the weekly Wednesday meetings of the Ulster Army Council and the Royal Bar on the Shankle, and was a polished, skilful and accomplished chairman, respected by all. He had been part of a 16-man delegation who some years before had come away from a meeting with British politicians feeling that he had been assured of the continuation of the RUC and the B-Specials only to see these assurances quickly reneged on and swore thereafter never again to trust an English politician. He was, by the way, a committed Ulster nationalist. The three constant representatives of the Ulster Workers' Council were Harry Murray, Tom Beattie, another power station worker, and Billy Kelly, on who it all depended. Billy Kelly and Harry Murray had hoped at first to keep paramilitaries out of their venture, but when it came to the crunch, there was no choice. 
And the final plank of the strategy to make their stoppage in the fact of national rebellion with overwhelming support was to co-opt the three mainly Protestant political parties that made up the Treble UC. They met the leaders and liaise with a degree of understandable caution. They were all painfully aware that the politicians would take the credit for any victory and disown them in any failure, and that this was a risky, momentous, audacious plan to wreck their own government and to destroy the foreign policy of two other governments. The leaders of the political parties, Bill Craig, Ian Paisley and Harry West, finally met with him in a hotel in Cookstown, County Tyrone. The original date for the strike was the day of the general election, 20th of February, but the politicians encouraged them to delay for practical reasons, given people would not accept a winter of blackness through power cuts, and, as Anderson relates, the impact on hospitals, particularly maternity wards and incubators, through competing demands for power. Billy Kelly kept arguing for the strike and Harry Murray delaying, and when the date was set again for the 8th of May, Fisk reports that it was no less than Ian Paisley who leaked it to the press. The date was revised again for the 15th of May, based on the day of the vote by the Assembly and Faulkner's amendment to show faith in the executive. The politicians, despite being in cahoots, would not take their seats on the Ulster Workers' Council until the fourth day of the strike, holding off to watch how events developed. The weekend before the strike, Paisley and representatives of the other two political parties met with the UWC again in the form of Hugh Petrie, Harry Murray and Harry Patterson in the Protestant town of Lorne. And when they were told in full the nature of the indefinite strike plan, they were suddenly against it. They had been thinking in terms of short strikes or of a day or two. And when the plan was explained to them, the politicians realised, horrified, that this was actually a tussle to the very death and they were certain it would fail. The UWC even went to talk to the new British Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Merlin Rees. Their delegation met the new Secretary of State on the 8th of April during the wrangling in the Assembly by the politicians. The UWC deputation included Harry Murray, the UWC Treasurer Hugh Patterson and Hugh Pedry. Their deputation at that meeting had threatened to bring Ulster to a halt if they would not hold elections. The government response was elections would be held in the fullness of time, so no. The conversation moved on to harassment by security forces in Protestant areas, as well as internment of Protestants, and Rees astonished them by replying that there was no such thing in Ireland as the SAS. Rees had officials bring charts to demonstrate that the number of terrorist explosions had decreased in the last 12 to 24 months. The UWC delegates pointed out that this may have been the case, but whereas the year before the IRA were using £20 bombs, now they were using £200 bombs. In fact, in the month of March, there were 921 terrorist-related incidents, the largest of any month. As Fisk comments dryly, Reese's attitude imprinted on the UWC in April as much as they clearly imprinted on him. Reese remembers their meeting clearly when he writes in his memoirs and describes this meeting as an angry, disjointed meeting that, that added to my disquiet. He goes on to remember that throughout the meeting, voices were raised and tempers ran high. As Fisk states, it is possible that their presence caused a few heart flutterings among his officials. According to the UWC, two men in plain clothes sat just behind the delegation as they faced Reese. Each had a hand inside his jacket as if holding a gun. And what becomes clear is that Reese and the British government had no idea who these men were and could not get the measure of them. Accordingly, they reverted to type and to stereotype and assumed they were just another violent paramilitary group. So all of this 
takes us back to the crunch day, the 14th of May, 1974. And so the 14th of May came. And watching the long final anticipated debate and the coming voted storm at that day was Harry Murray with two other members of the UWC, Bob Pagels and Patterson. There is a conflict of accounts as to what transpired between the UWC men and Craig and Paisley and their deputies. Harry Murray's account was that Craig was distracted because his house had been bombed. Paisley was distracted by his personal security detail having been removed. Craig, he maintained, told him that the strike would be a failure and wouldn't last 12 hours. He said it would not get the support it needed. Paisley suggested Harry West, who was speaking at the time in the chamber, should string out a speech. That would block a vote that day, which would mean there could be no more vote for at least another three weeks. The meeting was hostile. Yet according to one politician, it was the UWC men who panicked when confronted with the enormity of what they were about to do, and that it was the politicians who told them that the die was cast and they would have to be satisfied with whatever arrangements they had already made for the strike. And then the Assembly divided and voted down Craig, Paisley and West's motion by 44 to 28. Faulkner had won. If you take out the 19 SDLP members, the majority of Protestants had voted against it and therefore it did not enjoy the widespread acceptance in both communities, which was a precondition for the whole structure. But democracy was what it was in 1974 and they had lost. Harry Murray, as he stood alone, unable to search out Pagels and Patterson, was approached by a lone BBC reporter to give an interview. Uh, glimmerings of a threat of a strike had been reported in the papers in the lead-up. Uh, to the vote, but nobody took it seriously after the day of shame which had revulsed all of Ulster in 1973. The consensus was that this one would peter out meekly after discrediting itself in an eruption of violence. As the army of reporters and photographers reported the result of the vote and interviewed an exultant Faulkner and his triumphant ministers, Harry Murray, largely unnoticed, delivered his speech. The UWC had released a press statement the day before warning journalists that they were about to call a power strike, but the press had no idea who they were, and instead, after briefly describing the UWC as a group calling themselves the Ulster Workers' Council, went on at length to cover the Ulster Army's Council angry threat of a coup d'etat, but never a bother about that now. As Fisk states, At eight minutes past six, on Tuesday evening, the 14th of May, 1974, a small man with slightly receding, untidy brown hair, wearing a sports jacket that did not match his trousers, and speaking in an accent almost incomprehensible outside Belfast, walked self-consciously into the press room at the Stormont Parliament building and announced that the Ulster Workers' Council was calling a strike. The room, tucked away at the north end of the neoclassical building, was filled with journalists, but few paid any immediate attention to the newcomer. He announced that the people were prepared to go down to one meal a day and no meal a day if need be. The strike was called and what was soon to become a national rebellion was on. The Presbyterian Church condemned the strike. The Protestant Church of Ireland also. Indeed, all the Protestant churches now held in little respect, Barr called them useless, condemned the strike. The trade union secretaries condemned it. The Irish Congress of Trade Unions condemned them. Indeed, the press condemned them, as did every organisation. But they were going to do it anyway. And to finish with a side note. On the day before, something of great import happened that would have terrible consequences for innocent people going about their business in Dublin and Monaghan later that coming Friday. On Monday the 13th of May 1974, the papers carried the news. The British Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, addressed the House of Commons, revealing an intelligence coup against the IRA. 
The previous Friday, the army had raided a house on the Malone Road where Escapee Brendan Hughes had been staying, which revealed the planned position of car bombs and Protestant interfaces intended to cause mass deaths and maiming of Protestants on the way to work. The map itself covered all of Belfast. It dealt with emergency radio services, welfare for Catholics, after the multitude of bombs went off in the face of Protestants on the way to work and after the IRA fired all of the buildings and the retreat into standpoints in Catholic areas. This discovery, the Prime Minister went on, reflects great credit in the RUC and the Army. An apparent operation of potentially great danger has come to light. On the 14th of May, the day of the vote and the eve of the strike, the papers were still full of the story. And an IRA spokesman admitted that although the plan was genuine, it was a plan for a doomsday scenario only. Nevertheless, he added, in conceding that it had been a tremendous political coup for the British government. Though they, he said, the British government, may be winning the war of words, make no mistake about it, we are still winning the war of bullets. If there was ever a time to act, it was now. With peaceful Republicans in government and violent Republicans planning slaughter and annihilation, their ultimate goal was no different to Protestant eyes. The UVF had just been legalised and stated in their communiques that this was an attempt by the IRA to draw them back into violence, which they were wise to. Nevertheless, in Portadown and in Belfast, UVF officers poured over the maps and their reaction would inform what would befall Dublin that Friday. And when the next two momentous weeks of the strike were over, the Irish government would learn the hard way never to overreach itself again. <laughs>